You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Molly Wood, host and senior editor of Marketplace Tech on National Public Radio, a host of the podcast Make Me Smart with Kai and Molly. And I am excited to be in conversation with Sarah Fryer. I am sad that we are not hanging out in person, but I guess the benefit of a remote interview is you can bring your own wine. Sarah and I, Sarah is author of the new book, No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram, which we will be talking about tonight. If you are joining us and you'd like to ask her a question, please ask it in the chat if you're watching on YouTube or in the comments if you're watching on Facebook, and those will find their way to me through the magic of technology. Let's get started. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Um, Okay, let's see. Your book, which I have slightly too far away, follows the evolution of Instagram from what's fascinatingly a company that really valued quality to one that was sort of forced to value virality. So let's kind of start at the beginning. What were the founders intending to do when they originally created this app in 2010? Well, when Instagram started, the other apps on the market that really were social were all based on desktop computers. And everyone was starting to get smartphones and was carrying around an ability to take photos in their pockets, an ability to to take your phone, take the internet with you wherever you went. And and that was very exciting. But when Facebook and Twitter built their products for mobile, it it didn't feel as native. And what it, it just felt complicated. It was complicated for people to use. And the thing that the founders really wanted to do fundamentally was make something simple because they tried something before Instagram called Bourbon, which was not simple. It was, it was very, it, it had so many different features. You could check into places. You could tell your friends where you were going and see if they would join you. You could see if, um, if people were going, you could post photos, sure, but, um, it was on a major lag and they just realized that it wasn't resonating. And they sat at a whiteboard and said, what problem are we trying to solve? And let's just do that. Let's not do anything else. Let's just make it easier for people to post photos on their phones. And soon after that was the realization that it could be so much better if those photos were filtered. Kevin Systrom, the CEO of Instagram, had a photography background. He actually studied photo development. And while other companies had attempted photo filtering to... uh, correct for the graininess and the low quality of iPhone photos at the time, nobody really had the background that made it feel natural, that made your photos immediately feel nostalgic. And that's what Instagram brought to the world in 2010. It was this ability to post something and immediately turn it into a memory. And it was accessible to to everyone. And I know we're going to delve into this more, but I feel like one thing that's so fascinating about Instagram from the get-go is this idea of the curation of the quality and the curation of the experience. You talk about how it was really simple. They wanted the photos to look beautiful, but even up to sort of like who could use the platform. I mean, weren't people sort of like literally begging to get in on this thing? And Instagram was saying like, oh, no, no. Well, in in the beginning days, it was in beta and only a few people were allowed to use the app. 
as a, the Apple Store really limited who you could give it to before you launched it widely. And what the founders did is they picked people who they thought would be essentially influencers before influencers was a, a term in our in our current market. They picked people who were artists, who were creatives, who were photographers, who they thought were cool. And when those people posted their Instagrams, those Instagrams were distributed to all their social networks. And then everywhere else that these, these creative artistic people posted, all of their friends and contacts would look and say, where, how did you get your photos to look like that? And then they would download Instagram. And the most influential of these early influencers was none other than Jack Dorsey, who was the co-founder of Twitter. And he was Instagram's biggest fan, was actually really close with Kevin Systrom, the CEO of Instagram, from when he worked at, at Odeo, which became uh, the company that would start Twitter. And so, so I, I think that you'll find how small Silicon Valley is through this story and how it's really based on these relationships and and this kind of fateful meeting that ends up creating a, a very successful product through word of mouth in a tight circle. Yeah, talk to us about that because you have this sort of Kevin Systrom origin story, which is really like, could have ended up not that impressive. He's kind of bouncing around at tech companies. He's not really sure what his path should be. He's not really sure what kind of you know, tech company he should be. And he's really done stints. I mean, he just puts in his time at kind of all the big Valley names. Right. I mean, he, he was asked before he was working with Dorsey at Odeo, he was asked by Mark Zuckerberg if he would want to join the facebook.com, which is what it was called at that time and help them work on some sort of photo thing. Zuckerberg had met him at a fraternity party, sipping beers out of red plastic solo cups and and basically just needed anyone he could hire. He was desperate, just like any young startup in Silicon Valley. And this is back when Facebook was only available to college students. And Kevin Systrom turned him down, which seems like a really dumb mistake in retrospect. He could have been so filthy rich from that decision, but nobody knew that Facebook was going to be what it was today. Then he goes, um, he really, he wants to graduate Stanford. So he graduates Stanford. He goes and he, he starts at Google where all good Stanford business majors end up. And, and then he ends up, uh, seeing his friends from his audio internships start Twitter. And he, he doesn't, he's not that interested in Twitter either. So already he's had two of the really big new inventions in Silicon Valley say, Hey man, like, do you want to help with us? Uh, and he's like, ah, no, I'm, I'm good. Um, and, and that could have been the end of it, but what it really teaches him and what it teaches, uh, his co-founder Mike Krieger is that anyone can build these products that all the people building them are, are flawed, are just trying to be relevant or just trying to succeed. And he thinks, well, I should be able to do that too. Even though he's not a, a classic programmer. He's not a hacker. He's not the typical guy you would think to be starting this company, but he is well-rounded and he has interest in art and he has interest in, in architecture and lattes and bourbon and, and restaurants. And he really loves the finer things and he builds something that helps other people get into their interests the way he gets obsessive about his interests. And they do tell him, and this is also sort of, I think, a classic Silicon Valley moment. He is told that he has to get a co-founder. Like, right. you're not going to be able to pull this off without someone else. 
and they end up building this thing. I just, before we like get into the meat of the, the kind of the Facebook acquisition, I do want to talk about this sort of amazing thread, which is that one of the early users and influencers that they cultivate is Justin Bieber. And that because Instagram, and this speaks to sort of the way that they built this product, which is so slowly and specifically and with so few employees, that literally every time Bieber posts, the whole thing breaks. It just breaks apart. I mean, they had they had a half a server dedicated to Justin Bieber posting and crashing things. And, and he actually, Justin Bieber uh, had a manager named Scooter Braun, who if you follow the music industry, you know who he is. And Braun had seen this movie before. When celebrities started using Twitter, they knew that they were helping Twitter become a more famous platform. Every time they posted on Twitter, people would go crazy and retweet them and it would be very exciting. And so Justin Bieber actually wanted a piece of Instagram. He was advised to get that by, by his manager. And, and the, the founder said no, that they didn't want to be compensating anyone to post on Instagram. And, and he said if he, if he didn't get a slice of Instagram, he would quit and he did, but you know, just a few weeks, months later, he was right back on because it's suddenly it was where everything was happening. Right. Ashton Kutcher, same, right? Really was sort of begging to be an investor and they're saying, no, thank you. So then there is a little bit of a bidding war for Instagram or at least a behind the scenes tussle, which frankly, I don't think that I knew reading this book. I don't know how hard I did not realize how hard Twitter tried behind the scenes to buy Instagram. Walk us through that. And what do you think would have happened if that had been successful? Well, it's sort of the mirror of Kevin Systrom's story, getting asked to go to Facebook, getting asked to go to Twitter, working at Google and hating it, all three of those things. And, and then he ends up at Facebook at the beginning. And in Twitter, so first it was Jack Dorsey's idea before Instagram even launched to buy Twitter. And Ev Williams said no, because Jack Dorsey and Ev Williams famously infighting as co-founders of Twitter, really hated each other, um, couldn't stand to do anything that would be the other guy's idea. Then a year later, uh, Jack pitches the idea again. And this time, Ev Williams has been ousted as Twitter CEO, and now Dick Koslow is in charge. And Dick Koslow says, well, this company doesn't have any revenue, and, and it's so small. Why would we pay anything substantial for them? A few months later, you've got President Obama joining. You've got Taylor Swift joining. You have things happening on Instagram. Justin Bieber is blowing it up. And suddenly Twitter realizes like, okay, this could be the thing that has, that makes inroads in culture the way we hope Twitter will. And we should definitely buy it. So Dick decides to go all in. They meet around a bonfire at the Allen and Co conference in Arizona. And Kevin says no. I, he, and then later he says he never got an offer. It, it's, it, it was, yeah. it was that bonfire, but it, then it was also multiple sushi dinners. Then it was also, um, drinks at, at the Four Seasons and at the Good Hotel. And it was just like a constant courting ritual. And, and the, the founders of Instagram just couldn't see it. They thought that they had something really special. And once Mark Zuckerberg heard that Instagram was about to raise more money and pursue being independent, he was on the phone immediately and he was calling Kevin and offering him a billion dollars. So then Kevin, you finally get a yes 
from this guy. You finally, you finally everybody get else a- is gonna know. You finally get a yes. Why? You finally get a yes because Zuckerberg has been in the same shoes. He got an offer from Yahoo in 2006 for same amount, a billion dollars, and he said no. And the reason he said no is because he didn't believe that Facebook would be as successful within Yahoo, that it had bigger potential outside. If you're an entrepreneur, you need to have that crazy sense of your own potential for success. So he appealed to Kevin Systrom as an entrepreneur, and he said, he said, not only can I give you this insane amount of money that no one has ever paid for a mobile app before, I can keep your company independent. You can stay the founder. He really appealed to Systrom's ego. And he also appealed to Mike Krieger, the co-founder of Instagram, because Facebook actually had a lot of engineering resources that Instagram needed. Instagram was, was crashing all the time. Mike Krieger was, was fixing it at, at birthday parties, fixing it at bars, at, at, even while he was camping at one point. And so they realized, okay, we could grow Instagram with all of Facebook's resources and none of the risk and still maintain our role as founders, our role as visionaries, and in all the glory that comes with that. Right. That sounds so great. And that is so not what ever happens <laughs> when your company gets bought. I mean, no. like, why, why did they sincerely think that they would succeed where no other acquisition ever has? And not even just in tech, you know? I mean, that was so certainly that was own, not the way it Kevin Systrom's own investors were telling him, are you sure that that Facebook's going to keep you independent? Like Zuckerberg actually said that. They're not just buying you to kill you. Um, and he said, yeah, no, I believe him. I, I really think, and, and th- just imagine this is happening in Zuckerberg's backyard. There are no bankers involved. It's Zuckerberg, Systrom, and Amin Zufanun, the deals guy, uh, who's canceled spring break vacation with his family to be there for this moment. And really few other people. I mean, there are a handful of Facebook lawyers that they, that don't even show up to the, to the backyard. Zuckerberg's grilling some meat. It's a, it's a buddy buddy situation. Um, they are just negotiating this in, in a completely whirlwind situation. Um, and it's easy to see anyone become charmed by that amount of money, by that exciting prospect in a matter of two, three days. Yeah. I mean, it is a little hard to think of Mark Zuckerberg mounting a charm offensive, but apparently it can be done. Um, He knows how to talk to founders. He knows how to talk to founders. Exactly. So if we spin forward, you get to this point then we're, you know what? I'm just going to keep going sequentially because then you have this kind of the moment where it all could have turned. And the, and that is the question of whether this purchase is anti-competitive. One thing that's so remarkable about your book is that it points out how all these companies were trying to buy each other constantly. And even as it goes on, you see Mark Zuckerberg trying to buy this company and that company and all these things that he sees as, as competition. And yet, and I think there was an excerpt on this published even today, and yet regulators just don't see it, don't understand how Instagram is competitive with Facebook. I mean, how does that even happen? You need to consider the the way that our antitrust law is written. It's written for companies that sell things to people. And these are free products. So 
In order to evaluate whether this acquisition was anti-competitive, you have to consider, you know, there is no direct obvious consumer harm as defined by the law. But beyond that, are they competing? Are these companies competitive with each other? And that was really the question that the FTC was trying to answer. And Facebook came to them with all sorts of information about how there are dozens of photo apps and we have a photo app and, and, you know, of course, you know, Instagram is just one of many and there's no, there's no obvious chance that it would succeed. And, um, they do something very different than us because they're more focused on mobile and we're more focused on desktop. What regulators missed about Instagram's potential is that it was already achieving what you call a, a network effect. Once enough people, once you have a critical mass of people using a product, it's very difficult for any product doing the same thing to edge them out. And already at the time that the acquisition was being reviewed, Instagram had that momentum that Zuckerberg saw, that Zuckerberg was afraid of, that he needed to buy them in order to make sure that they didn't cut into Facebook's potential to win on mobile. And and so, you know, he really had that vision because that's exactly what happened to Facebook. If you think about it in sheer terms of who else has an app like this, it's not going to sound as impressive. And so when the FTC is looking at it, they're more trying to say, well, what software is Instagram built on versus what software is Facebook built on? Can we really say that they are? It, it was just the completely wrong questions to be asking about the deal. I mean, I will say that the book is in some ways also a pretty damning account of Mark Zuckerberg casting his eye of Sauron around the valley and the world and picking out competitors and going to buy them. I mean, can you imagine some parts of your book being read in an antitrust trial? I mean, I think the most glaring thing that Facebook has is this this app called Onava, which they they didn't really talk much about until until Apple banned it in the App Store. I think that was last year. But what this app can do, it's a VPN, which means that people are using it to to access the internet without surveillance from their governments or from from whoever might be looking at their internet traffic. And in exchange for providing that VPN, that way to the internet, Facebook can see which apps they're using on their phone, whether they're using them, you know, multiple times a day, what pages on the apps they're using. And Onavo data really helps them internally because imagine being able to see all of the usage trends for all your competitors, companies coming up that maybe you haven't even heard of that are gaining steam overseas. That's how they knew about WhatsApp and, and the WhatsApp chat apps, tremendous popularity and ultimately ended up acquiring them in 2014 for $22 billion, which was another insane price. But they already saw in the Nava data that they were having the, the success with the network effect that I talked about. So let's talk about what happens then once Instagram comes into Facebook and it is not, it, you know, there's clearly a clash of personalities, which is not an uncommon story with acquisitions, but there's also this like really remarkable difference in approach, which is that Facebook is all about growth no matter what. And Instagram is all about sort of like perfection and fancy coffee is very precious. They're very, yeah, the precious is that word started to grate on Instagram employees because that's how a lot of Facebook employees describe them. They were very particular about quality and about what they called craft. They wanted things to be, uh, they wanted Instagram to be like a premium product. And, and Facebook, on the other hand, 
they're all about the data. They are doing whatever they can to, to hack their way to more of our attention, more of our time. And they're tracking it on every level. They're tracking how many photos we post per day. They're tracking how often we leave the app, how often we come back, how long each session is. And Instagram wasn't tracking any of that. They were just looking at Instagram's impact in the world. They were doing all sorts of, uh, very sweet community type things where they would gather people for photo walks or they would cater to celebrities or they would throw parties. And, and it was just all to Facebook, like a waste of money. Like why would, uh, why would you ever focus on a small group of people? or even an individual famous person, when you could be focusing on millions of people or tens of millions, hundreds of millions. And and so, yeah, that really graded on Instagram. And, and furthermore, Instagram didn't want to do the kinds of tactics that Facebook loved to do. They didn't want to send you spammy emails. They didn't want to give you incessant notifications. They didn't want an algorithm. They didn't want to make a ton of recommendations that were algorithmic because they wanted... They wanted Instagram to be a process of discovering things that you didn't know that you wanted, as opposed to Facebook, which is a process of discovering things that are similar to what you've already seen. What? I mean, it's such an interesting picture, and you could imagine that there's a world in which the hard truth is that the Facebook model works. Because once Facebook does sort of cut off Instagram a little bit from the mothership, essentially say you are responsible for your own growth. That strategy, you know, and you see Kevin Systrom like paralyzed, unable to hire because it's so he's picking out the perfect coffee bean. The coffee thing like really bugged me. Um, a theme throughout. You know, I, and I think fundamentally that's the question of your book is like, what is Instagram without Facebook? Would they have gotten as big and influential and gotten, you know, we'll talk about influencers in a second, but had that much sway over our culture without the power of Facebook. Well, a really good example of that is the advertising problem, which is that Instagram wanted to make money, but they wanted to do it in their way. They wanted the ads on Instagram to look like ads in the pages of Vogue, like something very uh, alluring, like, like a scene from a lifestyle that you would want to aspire to. And there was only going to be at first only one a day because this is a premium product. They would charge a ton of money for it and they would all be individually approved by Kevin Systrom. And at one point, my favorite story from this is that he actually personally edited a photo of French fries that an advertiser was running to make them look crispier. He's the CEO of Instagram and, and this is, this is very important to him that ads not turn people away and that they fit the Instagram aesthetic of, of curation and, and beauty. And Zuckerberg wasn't having any of it. He said, listen, you guys can get to a billion in revenue by 2015. And if you're not going to get there on your own, we're just going to plug in the Facebook ad engine. And that was enough to scare Instagram into action. Because if you looked at the Facebook ads that were running at that time, they were just... They were awful, like billboards. Um, they had phone numbers on them. Can you imagine prices? Like these things would just look garish on the beautiful, crafty Instagram. So, so Instagram had had to slowly ease them in and and 
and say, listen, like we will do this Facebook thing, but you have to improve your pixel quality. And um, they got to a good happy medium and they did get to a billion in revenue after plugging into the Facebook engine. But it was like um, one executive described it to me as like being put in a microwave. Like you get hot faster, but you might explode or get irradiated. (laughs) Like doing that project within those months was just a ton of pressure, but ultimately a, a, a good result from a business perspective. Right. Let's get to the T between, you know, this idea that Mark Zuckerberg and Kevin Systrom just could not come together, could not see eye to eye. The culture clash was too strong. The sort of sense of how to make money was too strong. But do you think it is smart? Like, let's put this in, in through the business lens. Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook become concerned that Instagram is cannibalizing from the main product. This is not unheard of in businesses. Certainly, uh, Apple will not sell us a touchscreen laptop because it wants us to buy a MacBook and an iPad. But they sort of found a solution. Like, do you think that this jealousy with Mark Zuckerberg and the concern about cannibalization is purely professional? Or at some point, is oh, it like I, not I smart think, business to starve one of your children? I think it's personal for both leaders. And I think ultimately the book in general, I mean, not just the story of these two men, but the story of how we use Instagram and how it's been integrated into our lives is about feeling successful. And for Zuckerberg, I mean, he would always preach this idea that we should disrupt ourselves, that if somebody doesn't kill Facebook, if, if, sorry, if, if we don't disrupt ourselves, somebody will come kill us. And internet products don't get the luxury of leaving ruins. They just disappear. Like he had this paranoia that Facebook would disappear. And so if you're Kevin Systrom listening to that, it sounds like Zuckerberg would be very okay with Instagram eventually exceeding Facebook in potential or in size. And over time, he realized that that was not the case, that that there was an emotional aspect in, in his mind to Zuckerberg's thinking about trying to restrict the resources ultimately for Instagram and keep them from from growing the way that, that Facebook grew. Now, yeah, you're right. It, operationally, it, pro- it might make more sense. To, it, it might be cheaper to have one team dealing with Instagram and Facebook and Messenger and WhatsApp as opposed to four teams. Um, from a CEO perspective, yes. But then if you think about this product that has created this very carefully crafted brand image, how much of Instagram success is tied in with that? And I think that that question still hasn't been answered. I get a lot of screenshots from people of the kinds of notifications they're getting on Instagram, redirecting them to Facebook, um, the kinds of recommendations. Uh, and then there's also the issue of of policing the bad stuff on Instagram, which yeah. they basically I mean, outsource to real. Facebook. Mm-hmm. Like we should, these decisions have had some pretty real downstream consequences, whether right. it's, you know, policing misinformation, dealing with bullying, dealing with like illegal drug sales. It didn't Facebook in some ways by starving Instagram of resources out of this either professional or personal jealousy allow some of the worst parts of that platform to get worse? Facebook is all about scale. They only want to do things when they affect the most people and they want to prioritize the biggest problems first. 
And Instagram as the second largest social network they own is, is just never going to be a priority when there are fires at Facebook. And this is a problem because Instagram is, is used by more than a billion people and, and not just a billion people. There are six million people on Instagram who have followings beyond a million. So people are using Instagram for their livelihoods, for their businesses. 250,000 people have more than 50,000 followers, which is the level at which you can make money off of Instagram. And it's operated, it's such a different kind of product. There's anonymity, it's image-based, it, there's no viral sharing. Um, I, I listened to Facebook just last week talk about one way that it that it flags for fact checkers, the most harmful coronavirus misinformation. One of the top factors they think about is, has this gone viral? What's the potential for affecting the most people? Well, apply that rule to Instagram. Things don't go viral on Instagram. There are no hyperlinks. Instead, misinformation festers in hidden communities, hidden by hashtags, hidden a in a following of an influential person that you won't see unless somebody within that community shows it to you or unless you know the right hashtags to search for. So you need to build an entirely different machine learning model in order to to call that stuff out and be able to address it. So I do think that there are downstream effects that that really harm users in some ways if if Instagram isn't being prioritized as as much as Facebook. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Yeah, I mean, how that seems fairly irresponsible. It's one thing for me to say I can make a a reasonable decision that something that affects 10,000 should get a higher priority than affecting 10. But like you said, the amount of influence that we're talking about, literally influencers, an entire economy that was created that didn't exist before. Do you th- like, do you have a sense that Facebook is taking that problem seriously or that Instagram is? Well, that's the frustration from Instagram employees is that they're, they're, at the end of my book, Kevin Systrom goes and asks for more headcount to deal with Instagram specific issues. And he's denied. He's told that Instead of getting Instagram-specific headcount, he has to negotiate with the Facebook teams to get them to work on Instagram problems. Well, they've got their own problems, and they've got really big ones, too. I mean, Facebook is recovering from from having manipulated a presidential election, from Cambridge Analytica, if you remember that scandal, where, you know, tens of millions of, of users personal information was used by a political act, active uh, group to try to manipulate how we thought about elections. I mean, this is, it, there are a lot of fires that look bigger than Instagram's fires. And so I, I think if you're in that position, a lot of the employees that I talked to have been frustrated by speaking to to deaf ears. And I know that like they say that they're working on these things and, and they have done a lot on in certain categories like anti-bullying or um, they now have better prompts for people who are considering self-harm, which is a big issue with the young community on Instagram. Um, but there's so many issues that by the time the founders left, they hadn't even gotten around to thinking about in a proactive way. They were still trying to solve them when they were finally unearthed by the media or finally unearthed by an activist. Yeah. And spoiler alert, the founders do leave 
And it's oh, pretty yeah, much sorry. because Give of this, right? It's like the, but it's no, reality. I mean, it's I, reality. You know, I got distracted from our chronological timeline. But so yes, they get to the point where they're starting to realize that that Facebook is going to force growth on them, that these these resources are not forthcoming, and that there's this push to sort of like unify into a big messaging platform, right? Is that what finally pushes uh, Sistrom and Kriegel over the edge? Well, remember what I was saying was so important to them is that they wanted to be visionaries. They wanted to be founders. They felt like they were running a company within a company. Kevin Systrom used to call Mark Zuckerberg like a board member more than a boss. That's really how he envisioned himself. And it goes back to the, the ego I was talking about, the the need to feel relevant and successful in in this industry means that you have to be a visionary founder type. And ultimately, as Zuckerberg was saying, Listen, we are not going to let these products be different and be their own companies any as much. We are going to create a quote unquote Facebook family where everyone ties their resources together. We work on problems of you know in an integrated way. Instagram direct messaging is going to report up into Facebook messaging. Uh, we are going to be able to message people along the apps. And by the way, Instagram, we are going to cut off. All of the ways that people on Facebook find Instagram, no more links, no more indication about whether an Instagram photo shared to Facebook was from Instagram first. And on Instagram, you have to build explicit links to Facebook. You have to make sure that your users know that Instagram is owned by Facebook and that they should be redirected back to Facebook. And at a time of the kinds of political and public issues that I'm talking about with Facebook, this seems like like it might be a death sentence for Instagram because Instagram at the time was an escape from a lot of Facebook's problem. And so ultimately the founders felt like they were running a department of Facebook as opposed to their own company. Right. And a Which department of, course of Facebook could, in a way that You could anticipate. They, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, ironically, that is the story of every company that Facebook has bought. Like you, re, you know, you look at what happened with Oculus. You look at WhatsApp. Like those founders are gone. Sort of everybody ran into the buzz saw that is Mark Zuckerberg's ego, but also clearly like the growth engine. Right. And I think that there's there are important lessons to take away from that too. That for like every protestation that you get from Mark Zuckerberg about the users and building community, it was all about growing that product. Connecting Ultimate the world. That just and connecting that the world is a nice way to say, give us more users. We want to be bigger. Um, but yeah. I think that the other, th the other thing that's important is how do you measure success? And Facebook measures success in terms of the time you spend on Facebook, how deeply integrated it is with your life. And Instagram measures success in terms of, in terms of its relevance and in terms, in the, not as much in terms of the the metrics of of sharing of commenting of of the things that Facebook have been tracking. What are you trying to solve for? That question that the founders asked at the very beginning of their founding of Instagram was a question that they kept asking throughout their time there. And if something, if a new addition wasn't going to solve a problem for their users, then they wouldn't want to add it. Whereas Facebook was very intent on trying whatever might work. They tried like dozens of ways to compete with Snapchat. Um, they were always adding new products, always trying new things to try to increase their attention from users. 
And, and I think that those are very different philosophies and different ways to measure success. Yeah. I'm going to turn to your questions from the internet in a moment, but before I get there, let's talk about what's happening now. We have had a really nice 40 minutes or so of pretending that the rest of the world does not exist. Um, but what is the role that Instagram is playing now that many people are inside, that we're dealing with this pandemic, that misinformation is proliferating? And how does that impact kind of the way that Instagram was starting to develop as a product? Well, the thing that I was always fascinated by about Instagram is that the product has not just affected our online behavior. It's not just about how we scroll and, and what we click on. It's also affected our offline behavior. It's it's affected how we decide how to shop, how we decide where to travel, what to eat, what to buy. The We have had this reverence for things that are visual that will help us tell a story about ourselves via our Instagram. And in pandemic times, we're all home. And we're all vulnerable. We can no longer put on the show on Instagram about how amazing our lives are. In fact, that would be an incredibly insensitive way to be using Instagram right now. So the way people use the platform has dramatically transformed. And what you're seeing now is, is Instagram is actually essential in a way for human connection that it wasn't before. And people are doing a lot more messaging via direct messaging on Instagram. They're doing a lot more uh, tutorial videos. If you're an influencer that is usually hawking products, maybe now you're sharing your tips for a home workout or a, a coloring technique or a cooking technique. Uh, you're seeing a lot more live entertainment on Instagram. Celebrities deciding that they should just go live from their from their homes and their pianos and just perform for people. DJ D-Nice had hundreds of thousands of people coming to his club quarantine dance parties. And, and so I think that the transformation of how we use Instagram, it also has its root in, in how, how we've thought about ourselves there. Because you can't share content from other people on your Instagram account, it's all representing you, who you are, what you're trying to achieve in the world. It's the ultimate benchmark for your societal relevance, for good or for bad. And that's also given us a sense of, of our personal brand, which is not necessarily the most healthy thing, especially if you're young. But the positive aspect of that self-consciousness is empathy. And people know that they shouldn't be posting things that will make other people feel bad. And and I think that that if if there is a good thing to come out of the way that that Instagram's being used right now, it's that global empathy for you know there is no place to show off a good life. We just need to all sort of come together. I'm only chuckling because there is just one family on my Instagram who's not gotten that message. Oh, I, I but it's okay. Yes, I know there We're are some all people who are no, um, quarantining in style, and it's very grating. Yes. So well, yeah, I don't need to see that. No, no. Um, what does it say though about the because and at least anecdotally, and even from numbers from Facebook directly, it sounds like actual Facebook usage is way up too. And you've seen columns sort of extolling the idea that Facebook is like fun again, or it's for connection instead of like my crazy aunt and her conspiracy theories, maybe a little of that too. 
Do you have a sense of whether Facebook is like maybe pulling ahead again, though, in terms of popularity and traffic? There's certainly, I mean, traffic on Facebook is at peak levels. Uh, they yeah. are seeing more traffic on a constant basis than they do at the strike of midnight on New Year's Eve, which is their usual peak time when everyone says Happy New Year. Mm-hmm. More than that. So, so it, it is really an incredible uh, amount of, of return to that platform in terms of making it a part of people's lives. But it's, it's also in a different way. And Facebook is, is trying to get you to use groups more. They're trying to get you to use private messages. It's, they're trying to, to make it more about finding a smaller community within Facebook or a community that goes beyond your friends and family, because that's how you build a bigger network. When you've already connected with everyone that you know, you should connect with people that you don't know yet that might have similar interests. So that's the next frontier that they hope will work for continuing to grow the number of connections on Facebook. And the ultimate purpose for that is Zuckerberg thinks the more connections we have, uh, the more useful his products will be to us, uh, mm-hmm. which is, is, is one way of thinking about it. But also, I don't know about you, but when I have more connections, I'm less likely to post things that are vulnerable and, yep. and showing the side of my life that is, is maybe not meant for public consumption. Yeah, the trust part. Um, I want to look at some audience questions. And I think Raquel gets to a point that is also really present in your book, which is this question of competition. Snapchat being like the thing that Facebook can't quite acquire and has to copy. Now, as Raquel points out, TikTok seems to be the app of not just the quarantine, but even the months before. Should Instagram be worried about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean... Instagram has always been weakened by products where people are are having fun with no pressure. And that was the problem with Snapchat, right? Like like Snapchat was Seriously. a place where where you could just go if people don't know what Snapchat is, you can just post whatever you want to your friends and it disappears within either a few seconds or 24 hours. And so for teens that were really trying hard to put on a a beautiful image on Instagram and not just present the best version of their lives, but also manipulating their faces through photo editing, uh, taking hundreds of selfies and only posting the best one on Snapchat. They can be more raw and real. And TikTok is, is like that, but even more fun. I mean, you can go, you don't have to create to be on TikTok. You can just go through and scroll through videos that make you laugh. And, and I think that that's something that people need right now. And it's a lot harder to use video on Instagram in that same way. Yeah. What we'll come back to that. I want to stick with the, the listeners for a minute. Um, Tiffany wants to know if Instagram shopping is benefiting from the global pandemic. I can tell you that I personally bought a way too expensive pair of like slipper mule slippers. Cause I was like, okay, where else am I going? I yeah. might as well buy them. <laughs> I mean, I think beyond like loungewear, I don't think that retail is having a great time right now. Uh, yeah. I, Instagram shopping was supposed to be a, a huge deal this year. I, I've heard a lot of influencer excitement about it. Uh, there's, it's a way for people who are creators on Instagram to finally have 
a revenue stream through Instagram, which has been a big sticking point. Just like they wouldn't pay yeah. Justin Bieber to join the app back in 2011, they have been hesitant to pay people who devote their livelihoods to creating good content for Instagram. And it's starting to grate on them, especially when you can get paid through partnerships on TikTok. You can get paid very easily through YouTube. Instagram is just starting to realize that they need to give these people another income source. So if Instagram shopping really surges to prominence, I think it will be more because of that motivation than consumer behavior. Because I think that without as many products to hawk as general influencers, um, by that I mean like brands pay you to post about their product, the people who have built their businesses off of Instagram are going to have to find a different way to pay rent. And I think they're going to, yeah. they're going to try shopping. They're going to try whatever else it takes to, to still be a lucrative business. Um, I feel like you probably know this guy, Brad Stone. He says, when will we see the promised or threatened connections between Instagram, Facebook, and WhatsApp? And how do Instagram employees feel about it? And are their fears warranted considering what they saw in the past? So Brad, full disclosure, is one of my bosses. I have one of his books on my bookshelf here. Thank you, Brad. Um, he's wonderful. The, so the, the integration is happening now. It's happening behind the scenes. It's an incredible lift in terms of engineering time and resources. And the way it's starting out first is on messaging. So what you're supposed to be able to do eventually on messaging across Facebook, WhatsApp, and Messenger, and Instagram is message somebody else on those platforms and create essentially a mega network for yourself. Like remember I said Zuckerberg cares more about how many connections you have because he thinks that increases the value of the network. Eventually you'll be able to to message people across all the platforms and it will all be part of the beautiful Facebook family. And and I think that that is very difficult because one of the things that WhatsApp has that Instagram and Messenger currently don't is an end-to-end encryption, which means that not even the company can see what people are saying on WhatsApp. Uh, it's it's so it, it's so under um, a security layer that they can't even probe into it. So they have to be able to build that for these other platforms in a way that works across. And that's a big it's a big challenge, and it won't be ready anytime soon. But when it is. It will certainly be difficult for any politician to come out and say, break them up because, because they're, right. they'll be, they'll be incredibly intertwined by then. Oh my God. So much more we could say about this, but I'm sticking with the plan. If you had to rank, this is from Alex Barinka. If you had to rank, what do you think was the single most important decision the Instagram team made that catalyzed its success? Was it Bieber? I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> so. <laughs> I think the single most important decision that differentiated Instagram from all the other social networks was the decision to not allow people to reshare content. And that was so important because you see the problems with virality on Facebook and Twitter, things that go viral that the cream does not rise to the top. In fact, the stuff that goes viral tends to be very... uh, cheap or maybe misinformed or um, grabby to, to pull at some emotional response, whether it's fear or anger or happiness or um, something that makes you feel. Whereas Instagram is everyone's 
profile is a pure representation of what they bring to the world and in turn becomes a great personal branding tool, which is why Instagram has become so successful in, in an economic sense. And not only that, I mean, people, it's not the content that's going viral. It's, it's the people that are getting famous. And I, I think that that's, that's so unique that if the founders had taken up any of those requests from, um, Ashton Kutcher, like you mentioned, or from any of the venture capitalists who said, you just have to add resharing because it'll really help your growth. If they had, if they had catered to that, they wouldn't have had, uh, such a unique proposition for the world and wouldn't have been damaging in the ways they're damaging too. Yeah. Very true. Um, Will Bondurant says clearly Instagram today has a lot of the growth hacking going on. That was obviously a big part of the evolution once Facebook bought them. Um, but he wonders, did Facebook take any of the Instagram style or approach into its main app? Any preciousness that ever showed up on the other side? Okay. The thing that I think is really interesting right now, um, and I, I couldn't believe it when I heard this a, a couple weeks ago, Zuckerberg said that he was enlisting celebrities to get out good information about social distancing, about proper hand-washing technique. Yes. And Zuckerberg has been going live with epidemiologists, with Dr. Fauci, and he has started to realize in a very Instagrammy way that you are going to have an impact by catering to one person, by using people's platform, not just Facebook's platform, but the platform of people who have gotten big on Facebook and Instagram. Steph Curry went live with, with Fauci on Instagram. I mean, this is, this is now a company that has recognized the power that the people on it have. And that's, I think, thanks to hmm. Instagram. Interesting. So not necessarily anything related to how the app operates, but this influencer I mean, there are, idea. There are little things like, like internally Instagram started calling us people or sorry, Facebook started calling us people instead of users. Um, that was, oh, that's something oh, that nice. Instagram is very proud of, of instilling. Um, so there in some of the design uh, aspects, of course, when you see Facebook stories, that's something that Instagram, that design was invented by Instagram first. So they certainly have borrowed a lot from Instagram, um, just not, just not in the, in the same way of the growth metrics way. It is really interesting that Facebook does not necessarily seem to think, you know, there's this, I mean, this influencer aspect we barely touched on, but it's such a huge part of what Instagram brought to the world. It is this big economic driver for people who figured out how to kind of hack Instagram in order to make money, Kardashians. And there's really still none of that on Facebook. Do you think that Facebook just thinks it doesn't make enough money for the company? Well, Facebook is different because if you befriend someone on Facebook, they befriend you back. On Instagram, you don't have to have a mutual relationship. I can follow people who aren't following me and vice versa. So it's it's a lot harder for people to become Facebook famous. I mean, they've tried pages. They've tr- I just got a notification yesterday to follow a Facebook page for someone I follow on Instagram. And it just it, the lameness of that, like the person only had a Facebook page because Facebook pages are required if you want to advertise on Instagram. And they had like posted nothing there. So, so that notification was, was so Facebook. Um, but, but I think, I think the other aspect of it that's, that's interesting about how 
this cultural pull was was negotiated. It's also that Instagram really had an editorial decision-making process, whereas Facebook and Twitter were always about uh, letting people decide what they wanted to see. Instagram actually picked people that they thought would be successful and promoted them and made them more famous. And that was another really surprising aspect of their rise for me. I I just never, I, I'd heard so much from Facebook that, you know, we are neutral. We don't pick favorites. Like to see Instagram have a completely different thesis about that was very interesting. One other through line is the lack of trust in Facebook from users, AKA people. <laughs> and that, that shows up over and over as in, as Instagram is trying to grow and as they're sort of trying to figure out how to approach people. Now we are seeing Facebook really attempt to brand Instagram as a Facebook product. What is that about? And it could it backfire? So Facebook says, I don't know that we can quite take them at their word, but they say that instead of creating bad feelings for people who see Instagram from Facebook, instead of creating bad feelings about Instagram, it creates good feelings about Facebook. Suddenly, because we love Instagram so much, we see that it's made by Facebook, and then we start to change our perception of Facebook and stop thinking of them as evil and start thinking of them as the wonderful people who gave us Instagram. Uh, I don't know that people will actually feel that way. In fact, current polling suggests that most people still don't know that Instagram is owned by Facebook. Hopefully they will after they read No Filter. But, uh, but I, I think that this is, this is a dangerous game to play because we don't know exactly why people love Instagram as much as they do, but it it's probably has something to do with the decisions that Instagram has made over the years. And if Instagram starts to get more Facebooky, will people still go there? Will people still like it as much? Um, I've heard complaints from people who say when they go to Instagram now, it just feels like you're scrolling through a mall. Uh, it just feels like you're always being sold to whether it's, it's from influencers or from your own friends who are, who are posting about their vacations and the great things that they've done. Of course, different in the coronavirus times, but, um, but I think that there's a fatigue that could happen with Instagram and of course any social network. It's a careful balance you need to keep. Yes, especially because young people in particular who love Instagram are very sensitive to intrusion by the olds. Right. <laughs> um, it is, before I let you go, an informed tradition to ask all our speakers the following question. No pressure. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? Let's hear it. Oh, my goodness. I should have been prepared for this. I've been <laughs> to so many informed <laughs> events. Um, I mean... It's a, it's a simple one, which is that I think that we need to, to listen to each other and reach out and have more conversation. I mean, that's how I learn. As a journalist, I talk to people from all over the world. They DM me on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, and they say what they're thinking. And I learn so much just from hearing people's experiences. And I wish that we all would do more to learn from people outside of our circles. 
Thank you, Sarah Fryer, for joining us at Inforum on the Commonwealth Club. Copies of her book, No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram, are available for purchase at, of course, your local bookstore, if you could support them right now, or at barnesandnoble.com. If you would like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, which I think was pretty successful, I only heard a little bit of dog whining, please visit thecommonwealthclub.org slash give. I'm Molly Wood. Thank you. Have a good night and take good care.